New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The COVID pandemic is changing our world and changing our lives in ways that we hope will be positive, important, and enduring. The truth is that we probably will derive more pandemic insight from scrutinizing the past than from speculating about the future because no one pandemic is entirely separate from any other. In this deep dialogue, we'll meet a microscopic invader, the novel coronavirus, and come to know its most famous predecessors in the history of human pandemic diseases. We'll become acquainted with our microscopic defenders, the infinitesimal but ferocious warriors of the human immune system, which in a valiant effort to save the body has, in the past, prior to the discovery of antibiotics, tragically killed us in the process. So join us as together we search for insight into this microscopic new enemy that is infecting us with such audacity with our guest, Dr. Barbara Hort. Barbara E. Hort is a Jungian counselor and provides consultation and training in the theatrical practice of psychodramaturgy, which can be used by performing artists to enhance their storytelling. She's the author of Unholy Hungers, Encountering the Psychic Vampire in Ourselves and Others, and Hollow Crown of Fire, a discovery of meaning in the coronavirus pandemic and its predecessors. So join us for the next hour as we explore the coronavirus and how it's changed our lives, our relationships, and our world with our guest, Dr. Barbara E. Hort. I'm speaking with Barbara in her home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Barbara, welcome. Thank you very much, Justine. This book has gone into so many things that I have not understood or known in our history. And I love how you bring some mythology into it and help us to understand what this pandemic might be about in connecting it with previous pandemics. So first, I would love for you to say something about the 
present pandemic, the coronavirus, and how is it different from other pandemics? For one thing, we know a great deal more about the coronavirus than anyone knew about preceding diseases. Obviously, uh, during the Black Death of plague, during the plague of Justinian, during the plural pandemics in the uh, New World after Columbus and the conquistadors came. But even they, they knew very little about what was going on. The diseases, sometimes they thought it was God or the gods visiting curses upon them. Even in 1918, however, when we did have the notion about diseases, they didn't know about viruses. They couldn't see them. They had no way of identifying them. They were looking for a bacterium. And in fact, they couldn't see viruses until 1931. So 15 years after the 1918 flu. So we actually know a lot more about the disease itself, and the information spreads a lot faster. What's interesting is that a lot of the dynamics in communication and the way that we have emotionally responded to the pandemic is really very similar to what has happened to humanity in the historical pandemics, which I find not surprising in some ways, but very important and fascinating in terms of what we have to learn about the meanings of pandemic disease. But some of the things that we've learned about this particular, the novel coronavirus, is that mm -hmm. makes it difficult in, in these times. Is that, like, for instance, the symptoms of the virus don't show up right away. So it might be spreading before we even know that we have it. So that that's one, yeah. and also another. Uh, I think that you mention in in your writings is about um, how it infects different parts of the body. So at first they said, "Oh, this is a respiratory virus," but then it infects the liver. Or it, so say something about the diversity of this virus. Right, it's kind of a pentathlete. Actually, it is a vascular virus. It moves through the vascular system. It attaches to these little ACE2 proteins, receptors, that line every part of the vascular system. That means it can go to all of our major organs, and it seems to randomly choose which one it settles in, kind of sets up camp in. It can even get to, it can affect our brains because of the way our immune systems respond to the virus. I'm saying all of this not as a medical professional, but I've had wonderful sources that have educated me about this. And that's part of what makes the virus so tricky. It does primarily enter our bodies through our respiratory tracts. That's why they called it acute respiratory uh, syndrome, but it is not a respiratory virus. Then there's a huge variation in the way that our immune systems respond to it. Some immune systems overreact. Some don't seem to react at all, and sometimes they react in a delayed way, and so some form these uh, systemic clotting and can kill young people very quickly. Sometimes people who seem to be ill, like people with asthma, don't necessarily seem to be taken down by this virus more than other people. So it is um, a remarkable opponent for those who are trying to come to terms with how we should manage it and what we should do about it. It is 
very novel in that sense as an invader. I wrote when we were all sheltering in place, uh, I wrote about how, wow, this little microscopic thing (laughs) uh, that we can't even see with our naked eyes could affect the entire planet. I mean, we all came to a standstill. And I just found that remarkable. And I know that you write about how in human consciousness, we don't pay attention to the microscopic. We, we, We look at the big things like wars or droughts or climate change or whatever it is. But do you have any comment on that? Yes. One of the reasons I wrote the book was because I was interested in the enormous power of pandemic disease. It's pretty generally thought that more people have died in human history of pandemic disease than all wars and natural disasters combined. However, pandemic disease has received minimal attention compared to all of those events which we consider consider huge in human affairs, wars, we get a lot of attention, of course. And we also don't give a lot of attention to little tiny things. And, you know, the the title of the book, Hollow Crown of Fire, comes from a famous soliloquy uh, from William Shakespeare, his uh, life and death of King Richard II. And at the end of the play, uh, Richard, the king, and his friends are going to be killed. He, he has lost power. He hasn't been such a great king, and he's been quite narcissistic and considered himself above everything, including death. And then he realizes death is coming for him, and he says, nothing can we call our own but death. Then later he says, for within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court. Then later he says, we consider ourselves walled in this flesh of brass, impregnable, and death lets us do that, but comes at last and with a little pin bores through that castle wall and farewell, king. And basically what Shakespeare is saying is that We think we are impenetrable and impervious, but in the end, the little pin bores through. Isn't that what a virus or a bacterium does, that they bores through, and then we are taken down by the things we cannot even see? Wow, yes. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Shakespeare really, really captured it, really, really captured it. And and you have followed through with the title of your book, Hollow Crown of Fire. This reminds me of going back to earlier pandemics. And one in particular, I had no idea. We, We all are looking for meaning in global events, so to speak, and we're affected by this. We continue to be affected. And like um, you you mentioned in your writing how we don't know the butterfly we're going to become from all this chaos we're, we're experiencing right now collectively. And But going back to an earlier one, um, which is the time of Justinian, and and the implications that came out of that. So I, I'd love for you to share with us a, a bit about the Justinian pandemic, which was, I, I believe, in um, 527 um, 
CE, common era. So 527 to 65 uh, CE. So what was that about and how did that affect us? Mm-hmm. Well, Justinian was an emperor. Uh, he His center was in Constantinople. He waged a huge campaign to unite this disparate group of nations, if you will, or, or um, countries, because he wanted to recreate the Roman Empire. And he basically had pretty much accomplished that by 541, which was the real eruption of this disease, which had been creeping toward Constantinople. And but he had dismissed the rumors and just kept waging war. And he was a pretty determined guy, a brutal um, conqueror. And then uh, the plague erupted and it started killing people. Uh, we have a great, great account of what was happening in Constantinople from um, a historian named Procopius. That sounds very much like the accounts of the Black Death, people being stacked like cordwood bodies, being stacked like cordwood in any place they could find. There are some historians who have said, oh, that plague was inconsequential. It didn't kill that many people. Well, let's but let's talk actually, about that in just one moment, exactly okay. what the... And what happened after that? So I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Barbara E. Hort, and she is the author of Hollow Crown of Fire, A Discovery of Meaning in the Coronavirus Pandemic and Its Predecessors. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, barbarahort.com, and she spells her last name H-O-R-T. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. With Dr. Barbara Hort, and we're to, we're we're going back to earlier pandemics and their meaning and their consequences. So we're talking about Justinian. So where are we in that? Lots of people died. You you just said. I just I so I said that a lot of people died, but there are some historians who have recently said, well, not that many people died. It wasn't that big a deal, not compared to the Black Death in later in the 14th century. But in point of fact, uh, other historians have said, pointed out that the people who died were the people who were in the populated centers. That's how plague, it was plague, same plague, killed uh, where there were rats and concentrations of people. And in an organization of uh, 
society organized like a Roman empire, which was what Justinian was creating, the hubs of control are in the cities. So the people who died were the ones who were the centers of power and control and authority for the empire. So when they died, the empire died. And for the next 500 years, which just, you know, that's like from when Columbus landed to like your breakfast of cornflakes this morning, right? A long time. All of Europe was sort of in chaos. I mean, there were tiny countries warring among themselves. No overarching law, no overarching system of transport, commerce, government, none of that. Um, we used to call that time the Dark Ages. That is not politically correct from a historical point of view anymore. We call it the early Middle Ages, but it was a really tough time to be alive. Out of that time came independent nation states, France, Italy, Germany, England. The era of the empire in Europe was over. And that is surely one of the consequences of the plague of Justinian. It broke the empire age, at least for Europe. So one of the problems with pandemic disease is that it takes a long time to see consequences. But one kind of consequence is that kind of consequence. We can see that with various pandemics. And we can also see psychological changes when we look at the mythologies, like how is it that people react to pandemic disease? And we can see commonalities in the myths, the stories that become very important to the cultures of the people who are living through those pandemics. And that tells us something else about how pandemic changes human beings. So what is an example of a a cultural myth at that time that, that applies? Well, there I'll give you a comparison, actually, because they're similar. At that time, one of the myths that was still um, prevalent was the myth of Persephone, the, the myth in which we have the daughter of the mother goddess, this is Greek mythology, but it still prevailed in these Eleusinian mysteries. It was of a young girl who's in, in, innocent and picking flowers, and then the ground cracks open, and this man driving a black chariot, black horses, dressed in black, grabs her, takes her down into Hades, which is not hell, but the underworld. She's abducted. And in that place, she becomes transformed. We don't have to go into all the detail, but basically, once she is able to come back up, she's, she's sort of rescued. She does something which allows her to spend half the rest of her life in Hades, where she's the queen, and half in the upper world, the only deity. I think, Barbara, that you point out that Persephone is the only goddess that actually chose that profound transformation yes. and to uh -huh. dwell in both the lower and the upper world. I, I, had never, I had never understood that before. Oh, really? Yes. She is the only deity that lives in both realms, and she chooses it. She chooses essentially to eat six pomegranate seeds, because if she eats something in Hades, it means she has to return there. I mean, six months of the year, fall and winter, she lives in Hades, where she's queen of inner depth and, and wisdom and great wealth and darkness. And then six months of the year, she lives up in the spring and summer in the upper world where she's in the light. 
So she is considered by some to be the goddess of transformation and the goddess of awakening and illumination. And that myth is part of the Eleusinian mystery myth, the descent and the discovery of truth, personal truth, and then the return as a new, she didn't actually even have a name when she descended. And when she comes back, the great crone goddess Hecate names her Persephone. So that myth, very important myth in that early age. Later in the 14th century, just before the uh, Black Death comes, so in 1327, um, Dante publishes the Divine Comedy. And the first book of the Divine Comedy is the Inferno. And it begins with a descent into hell, basically, down to the 10th circle of hell, and then through purgatory, and then to, the, to paradise. And in that great story, one of the great stories of um, human literature, um, we see the same thing where Dante comes to a huge awakening, many different kinds of awakening, and emerges a transformed being. And that story was hugely important through the era of the Black Death and beyond it. So there, this is true for other pandemic stories, but the sense of descending into darkness, finding one's personal identity, new identity and truth, and then emerging the same but different, kind of like the caterpillar weaves the chrysalis, is transformed, digests itself really, and then reconforms as a butterfly and emerges, if it survives, and comes out the same cells, but in a different configuration, and now with wings. Uh, all of those images are all very consistent with the imagery that seems to come up during these times. And I think there are, are some people who have gone through and are still going through the lockdown, the pandemic, a reconsideration of who am I really? There was the before, and now there's the inside time, which is very hard, painful for some people. And now I'm emerging as somebody different, really, the same, but different, same cells, different configuration. It's hard to know exactly where we are when we're right in the midst of the, of, because we're still, I think, culturally in the descent, so to speak, or in the underworld. And I, I just would love for you to say some of the different ways that um, that may not be so helpful in responding to this mm -hmm. pandemic or any pandemic that went before. So if you could talk about some of the, some of the ways that that we as human beings respond uh, that are not helpful. Yes. Um, so in, there's a chapter in which I talk about human behavior as um, part of the defenders against the invader of the pandemic. So the, the whole book is set up like it's a, a drama, right? There's the invading protagonist of the pandemic disease. And then the human immune system is one set of defenders. And then our human behaviors are another. Sometimes the immune system sabotages us. Sometimes our behaviors sabotage us. You know, we, we defend not always effectively, but sometimes effectively. Among the behaviors that are not so effective would be things like denial. So to say, oh, there is no, it's a hoax. There's no pandemic. It's not that bad. It's just the flu. That would be one. 
Um, another one is to uh, displacement. So that would be to say it's it's somebody else's fault. You know, it's it's the kung flu. Uh, it's they're just making they're making a big deal out of it. It's there's a virus, but it's not as big a deal as they're making out of it. Another one is to say, well, there's there's um, there's a flu, but if I just party enough, I can just party my way right through it. People certainly did that during the Black Death. That's what the whole, you know, Boccaccio with this Decameron, about partying your way through the Black Death doesn't work, but it's a nice idea. Actually, Edgar Allan Poe wrote a book about that too, right? The, the Mask of the Red Death. So, you know, there's, that's, that's what human beings sometimes do, go out and party on the beaches in Florida or the bars in Texas, wherever they are. Um, so all of these are, they are human responses to stress, basically. And um, there's, there's a longer list than that, but all of them are things that human beings have always done. We have some other, sometimes we just wall up and act like we don't care and just keep marching along. That's actually sometimes can be helpful. It's what healthcare workers have to do. It's like, I'm about to go and risk my life to care for people. I'm just not going to feel my feelings until later. And then they go and save lives. During the Black Plague, Southern England was devastated. But there was a yes. chronicle that someone made in Farnham, England. Yes. And, yeah. and and somehow that that chronicle showed, even though they had a lot of deaths, that they worked through it by not going into that kind of denial. Can can you say something about that particular instance and how they survived yeah. as a community? Sure. Yes. Uh, well, I wish we knew more about them, but what we have are from what they call the pipe rolls that their Reeve is a steward of a big um, manorial estate, basically, and his name was John Runawick. And we, we know his name, and we know that he's probably about 30 years old. And um, in many parts of that part of Southeast England, the death rates were terrible. There was a lot of panic. There might have been an anthrax epidemic at the same time. Some areas like Norwich um, had 90% death rates. People were basically rioting, killing each other, slaughtering their animals. It was a all pandemic is bad, but this was a particularly hellish place. Somehow in this hundred at Farnham, this, this estate that John Runawick was stewarding, that didn't happen. And it wasn't that he was a severe boss because that didn't work during the Black Death. It was like, oh no, death is coming. But somehow he kept his 3,000 people farming and kept this a community. They just lived there, you know, and they were all men, women, children, animal husbanding their animals and uh, taking care of the buildings. And he was there for uh, four years, the worst years of the Black Death. They lost half of the people, but they had no violence. They had no, uh, no panicking. They just kept running the farm. I mean, they still had, death was still among them, but... 50% of them died. Somehow they kept in the community just going, they kept calm and carried on, you know. Yes, right. Um, sort of like as the English did, of course, in the Second World War. It was the same thing. We were just going to keep living. And I use him as a great model um, for what kind of leadership 
is most beneficial in the face of any disaster, but particularly a pandemic, is to keep moving forward, be calm, care for each other. They had to have cared for each other and their animals and and just keep on. And as a result, they had peace in that little place. That's a great example. I'm speaking with Dr. Barbara E. Hort, and she's the author of Hollow Crown of Fire, the, A Discovery of Meaning in the Coronavirus Pandemic and its Predecessors. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Barbara E. Hort, and she's the author of Hollow Crown of Fire. And we're talking about pandemics, not not only the one that we're going through right now, but also ones that are earlier. And I know that in your writing, you mentioned a wonderful allegory that was given to us many centuries ago by Plato, the allegory of the cave. And um, it just I thought that it was such a good analogy of how we can think we know reality and we're not maybe looking as clearly as we possibly can. So I'd love for you to tell the story of the allegory of the cave. <laughs> okay. Oh, wow. Plato. So the, the story is that there is a cave and people are sitting with their backs to a low wall and facing the back of the cave. And behind them are other people that are carrying objects and moving back and forth. And their shadows are lit from a huge fire that's burning at the mouth of the cave. And so what the people who have their backs against the wall are seeing are the shadows moving against the back wall of the cave. That's what they see. And they believe, because it's all they've ever seen, that that is reality. And at some point, one of those people stands up, we don't know why, and goes to the front of the cave. And it's quite frightening because very bright, never seen anything like this fire, so bright. And then beyond the fire, outside, even more light, so hard to see, hard to keep the person so hard to keep eyes open and there's a fire in the sky that's even brighter. I mean, really hard to keep eyes open. But after a while, the person is able to look around and see color and three dimensions and living things and living people and a world that is alive, not just shadows on the back of the cave. And then the person thinks, should I go back? Should I tell people? And some doubt about whether or not to do that. But in the end, this person decides, I will try. 
and goes back into the cave and tries to tell the others. Perhaps not surprisingly, most of them don't want to hear anything about this out, outer world. It, it really don't want to know, some of them, and others are like, oh, that, who cares? It's not important. This is good enough for me. And so that is the dilemma of the person who has seen what's on the outside of the cave. Now, I'm not a philosopher, so I, I can't really make commentary as philosophers would. This is like the big story out of Plato's public, right? This huge. But in, in this pandemic, in this time of going down and going in, I think a lot of people have reevaluated their priorities and their values and you know, what, as the poet Mary Oliver would say, what is it we plan to do with this one wild and precious life? They have changed. They've discovered that what they wanted before is what, not what they want now. And what was important before is not important now. And the world looks very different. And they're also discovering that there are some people that don't really want to wake up in that way. Or anyway, they don't want to change their perception. Maybe they are awake, but they don't want to change their perceptions. And that's how it is. It just is. But the person whose perception has changed can never unring that bell. Right. Because the outer world is there. And even if you go back into the cave, you can't ever forget that it was there. Right, right. Well, I, I think of this analogy um, that it might have something to do with a lack of collective memory of one of the huge, huge plagues. It was the 1918 flu epidemic. And it it happened coincided with World War One, the war to end all wars, and there's just barely a collective memory of of this. So please please comment on that and and its significance. Yes, that is is a a, a terrible tragedy in a very odd way, a double way. Um, so uh, so there was a war, and there was a flu. And the flu essentially ended the war because so many people were dying. They, the countries could not sustain the war. Um, more people, far more people died of the flu than the war. But it was the war that held the headlines. And the flu was really a byline um, at that time. And afterwards, too. So the flu burned out. It started in 1918. It started in March 1918. Um, it was called originally the Spanish influenza because... Spain was not involved in the war, and that was the; those were the only newspapers that reported on it. All the others were like, oh, no, we don't talk about that. We're busy fighting a war. Um, but in fact, it started in Kansas, a Kansas chicken, and then a Kansas pig, and then a Kansas soldier, and then off it went. So just, just so we know, it was came here from the U.S. of A. Um, and then the flu burned out in 1920, but by then the war was over, and so it was forgotten. On a collective level, on a cultural level, no one mentioned it. And historians did notice that. They noticed there was kind of a lack of mention about the flu, but there was so much about the First World War. And then, of course, the Roaring Twenties, and then there was a big depression, and then there was a second war. There was a lot going on, you know, in those decades. So, okay, fine. It wasn't until 1968 that this amazing historian, Alfred Crosby, was studying different 
death loss levels in soldiers around the country in the U.S. He was in actually Washington State University Library, and he started counting the dead. And he realized that the death counts from 1918 were astronomical. He knew that there was a flu. We all knew it was flu. But then he started actually counting. And as a good historian, he started communicating with other people, you know, census people. And it was he who first estimated in a book that he published in 76, actually, uh, just really for kind of other historians, that 40 million people had died. Now that's been adjusted upward to between 50 and 100 million, which out of a billion people in the world is a huge number of people, right? A huge number. He was a historian who was very interested in the role of biological events as huge determinants in history. Uh, so he knew what this meant. Later, that book was republished during the AIDS epidemic when we mm -hmm. had another virus that was killing people and not getting enough attention and Cambridge University Press republished as America's Forgotten Pandemic. But it was still remarkable that no one in 50 years, well, really by the time his book came out, almost 60 years, had looked at that pandemic at all. And there, was, there were a couple of poems that were written. You know, Yates uh, wrote his second coming poem, you know, about the beast slouching to Bethlehem, you know, turning and turning in the wire, the Ningire, the falcon cannot hear the falcon. I mean, there, there was despair and Crosby, in his book, talks about how the recognition of that pandemic was on an atomic, an atomized level. Individuals grieved, but the culture didn't grieve. The culture didn't acknowledge the pandemic. And as a result, we might say, the culture just partied on at the end of the First World War and then fell into a terrible depression which some people would say was not just economic, but emotional, oh. spiritual depression, as people do when they're grieving. We don't, we don't connect those two. 50 million two. people. We don't connect No, we them. don't. Yeah. No, we don't. No, we don't. Well, so in, in today's pandemic, now we're in, in 2022 and on the precipice of 2023, and we have this conversation where are we? Do you do you see uh, collective grief, uh, or are we in collective denial? <laughs> what do you see in in your estimation as you look at the past and look at the present? That's a really good question, Justine. That's an excellent question. Um, you were right earlier when you said it's easier to find meaning looking back in time, meaning for pandemic disease back and forward, obviously. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, neither do you. I think at this point, it's a great mix. There are people who acknowledge that we've lost over a million Americans. And those are the dead ones. So many people, we, we still I have not even beginning to calculate the long-term effects of COVID and what it does increased likelihood of developing Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, things like Epstein-Barr, you know, many things. This virus doesn't just stop when the coughing stops. So we, we know that. And what it does in terms of the, the psychological damage done, I mean, we're seeing this huge spike in kids and adults of anxiety. And now the insurance companies are saying, well, maybe anxiety is a disease. It's like, a, yeah, 
and and depression and so forth. So it is showing its long-term effects, but have we really reckoned with it as a trauma? I'm not sure. That's a really good question. And of course, the 1 million Americans is like 6 million people in the world, but we're pretty sure it's much many more than that. Have we really, do we ever fully comprehend a trauma when it's happening? That's another question psychologists debate, but I'm not sure that we have. Perhaps more than they did in 1918, because there isn't a global war right now, but there are a lot of other distractions. And what they didn't have then, and we do have now, is this tidal wave of information that just inundates us and distracts us. And it's like, oh, well, it's there are a lot of people who's like, oh, no, there's the pandemic is really over now. I don't have to wear a mask anymore. It's like, okay, well, the hospitals are filling up again on you, but whatever. So I think that uh, that's a, an excellent question. Have Are we engaging this? Are we really reckoning with the emotional, cultural truth of this pandemic better than they did in 1918? Not sure. That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah. But it's always the case. I mean, it may always have been the case that people have never really reckoned with the emotional consequences of pandemic disease, just suffered, died, and moved on. Well, that's that's certainly one of the questions. And and I, I'm thinking also that, you know, the survivors um, of the any pandemic, any of us uh, who have had COVID or who know of people who have had COVID, we're still so ignorant of the the total repercussions of of this and that's scary that's scary and i w- i want to talk more about that in just one moment but i want to remind our listeners i'm here with dr barbara hort and she is the author of hollow crown of fire a discovery of meaning in the coronavirus pandemic and its predecessors if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, barbarahort.com, and she spells her last name H-O-R-T. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Barbara Hort, and we're talking about pandemics, the present pandemic and pandemics of the past. And I, I'm just reminded 
of one of the myths that you talk about in your your writing in your book uh, is the Icarus and Daedalus myth and um, how I, I think especially when we talk about the time of the 1918 and and even before that the the um, in the 1300s when the plague bubonic plague was so rampant in in the world um how we leaned on science we lean we thought okay we can overcome this in a in a way because our scientific knowledge is really great and we we're so good at inventing things forgetting in some ways that nature itself has always been in charge and I, I think we we have this hubris that oh we can overcome all of this with our scientific knowledge. I'd love for you to say something about the Icarus myth and and how it applies, maybe even today in uh, the way we view how we can get through all of this. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's like several different topics. Okay, let me just think for a minute. Um, First of all, in the Black Plague, people thought that they could overcome the plague with prayer. So at that point, they were leaning on religion. And in fact, it was the Black Death that kind of broke the grip of the Roman Catholic Church that it had on Europe. At that time, it was a universal grip that it had. But when the nuns and the priests were dying faster than the regular people because they were caring for them, then it was clear that prayer wasn't working, that people were going to die anyway. So that didn't work. In 1918, they tried a lot of scientific um, things that they had at the time. Those also didn't work. Um, Today, we're discovering that these wonderful, amazing vaccines um, have done, they've saved many, many lives, but they're not perfect. (laughs) Can you believe it? They haven't just like stopped the the virus in its tracks, and now the virus keeps mutating, and how could it do that? People sort of insulted that, you know, they're mad at the vaccine makers because they couldn't fix everything. It wasn't a panacea. There's a, an environmentalist, famous environmentalist named um, Richard, sorry, Watson is his last name, who said, nature bats last. And one of the things that came out of the Black Death was the fact that um, naturism and the Renaissance rose again. So it was the notion that we are just on this transitory visit to being embodied, but really it's the spiritual life that counts. That ended really with the Black Death. It, it took 100 years, but it, it did diminish. And the respect, at least reverence for nature, the rise of the scientific method became it was a part of the consequence of the Black Death that we were like, oh, ah, nature is very powerful. Maybe we should learn from nature. The reason we know what viruses are today is because of the 1918 flu. The, the, the scientists tried to say, well, what is this thing? It's not a bacterium. And then they find, finally found viruses, which, of course, made it possible for us to have these vaccines today. We will certainly learn more about vaccine and how viruses work and how disease works because of what we're living through now with the coronavirus, also 
how nature works when we are heavily populated in this world. What are the parameters of disease and contagion when we are 8 billion people strong on a planet that has never had that many people before? So with regard to nature, I think that one of the things that pandemic disease does is it refocuses us on how powerful nature is in the determination of our lives. And we, in this electronic age, we're like, oh, we can rise above. It's mind over matter. We can, we can conquer nature. We, we've got this handle. We have computers now. It's like, that's not all, you know, that's not going to help when you've got these tiny, tiny little things that mutate, that, that, that have uncountable numbers, ancient history, and nothing else to do on their side, and they're just replicating and mutating, and that's all they do, um, they can outthink us in their own way. With regard to the Icarus Daedalus myth, that's not a great huge myth in, in Greek mythology, but in 1918, there was this, it was the first big war after the Industrial Revolution, a huge belief in the power of mankind, humankind, to create wonderful machines like trains and cars and tanks and airplanes and all kinds of wonderful things. And now we're going to go kill people with our wonderful machines. We're very powerful, very proud of ourselves now. Um, rather like in the myth of uh, Daedalus and Icarus, um, it had to do with Daedalus, who was a genius of an inventor, kind of like the Steve Jobs, Bill Gates of his time. And, um, and the king that he worked for got mad at him. So he locked him up in a very tall tower with his son, Icarus, which is always a, not a good idea when you put really smart people in boxes and then expect them not to find a way out. And so Daedalus made these set, two sets of wings that he built like bird wings, and there were high winds at the top of the tower. And so he tried his out, and he realized they could fly with them. So he said to Icarus, just be careful. Don't go too close to the water or the, the feathers will get wet, and don't go too close to the sun or the wax that's holding them together will melt, um, and you'll fall down. So off they went. Okay, the first in the myth, the first two humans that ever flew, you could only imagine what that, for anybody hearing the story, must have been so amazing. And off they fly, and Icarus, young man, takes off, and up he goes, and he thinks, of course, he's a god, right? Because he has wings, and maybe he had a computer, too, like an <laughs> iPhone, like the latest iPhone. Who knew what he thought? But anyway, he got too close to the sun. And before he knew it, his wings had fallen apart and he plunges past his father and into the sea and drowns. That story is a tiny little myth, but it has endured through the ages. And um, sometimes people think that he was the one who had hubris, who defied the gods. But in point of fact, it was really Daedalus who made wings that um, he shouldn't have been making. But to me... It, I put it in the book for the 1918 flu as a story for that because it is sort of what happens. Like, we're going to go to war with machines and we're going to conquer. And it's like, yeah, until nature came along and she brought the biggest gun of all, a virus. <laughs> Which is a virus. Tiny. And guess who won the war? Nature won the war. Tiny, tiny. And, tiny, tiny. And with a little pin bores through the castle wall and farewell king. You know, again, it's the hollow crown of fire. Barbara, I, I can't help but think that now this is maybe some tiny little thing, a little report. 
out of um, the South Bay in south of San Francisco that's saying, oh, we're going to have, we're going to allow robots to uh, have uh, use of deadly force to oh, yes, combat that, crime. Yeah. I, I couldn't help because I was right in the middle of your book and I'm, I'm going like, wait a minute, you know, is this the story of Daedalus and Icarus here? Are are we are we flying up to the sun uh, with wings that are going to melt? I I just so I it just takes me also to an, another uh, quote that you so beautifully bring to us from um, Maya Angelou, and she says. We delight in the beauty of the butterfly, but rarely admit the changes it has gone through to achieve that beauty. And and I think of ourselves here in this, we are in culturally, worldwide, in that caterpillar state of liquefying. Everything is is liquid right now, and, and it's not solid. And that's hard for us because we want to know, oh, what's the meaning and how is this going to turn out? So uh, each of us is having to make a decision about how we're living our lives and making meaning in some way. And I'd, I'd love for you to, to give any comment you have in all of your studies and research. Mm-hmm. Well, one one of the things I've I've said about this book is that, and one of the things I try very hard not to do in the book is to make some declaration about meaning, like where is meaning? Um, what I do is present the story like a good storyteller, hopefully, and then with all the different pieces, I trust that the story will offer the pieces that each reader needs to see in order to find their own meaning, that we find meaning, the meaning we need to see, we find the meaning that we need to find. And that's why it's a discovery. And um, I think that in our descents into darkness, in our liquefications, in our re, in our transformations into butterflies, I mean, we're not all going to be the same butterfly. We're not all going to be the same person at the end of this pandemic. It doesn't turn us all into the same being, and that's wonderful. So what my book might say to one person will be very different from what it says to another person, just as the pandemic will have different effects on different people. Exactly. And I just want to remind our listeners that Persephone went down to Hades and she brought back gifts. So we all can look at the gifts that that we are discovering in our own lives and in those of our loved ones. Thank you so much for being with us. I've been with Dr. Barbara Hort, and she is the author of Hollow Crown of Fire, A Discovery of Meaning in the Coronavirus Pandemic and Its Predecessors. And if you want to know more about her work, go to her website, Barbara Hort. Dot com spelling her last name h o r t barbarahort.com or you can get there through the new dimensions website newdimensions.org i'm justine willis toms you've been listening to new dimensions this is program number 3778 
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.